uh, like my four-year-old who woke up at 1.50 this morning wanting a banana. And I asked him, Henry, why did you wake up so early? And he's like, well, mom, it's part of my routine. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really, I'm here for the tip. Hello, and welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast, the official podcast of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am not Dr. Naftali Serrano, who is being a dutiful son today and helping his parents move, uh, but I am Dr. Grace Wilson, uh, the behavioral medicine faculty at Great Plains Family Medicine in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and we have most of the rest of our team here with us today. Uh, we have a great podcast planned today, really talking about something that we all need and probably a lot of us aren't getting enough of, and I know a lot of our patients aren't getting enough of, uh, but we're going to be talking about sleep. But before we get into that, uh, let's have everyone introduce ourselves and our question of the month for our intro to keep us from talking about the weather, uh, apropos to our topic, is to share a little bit of your bedtime routine. Uh, so, Dr. Borst, go ahead and give us a little bit of your information. Awesome. Hi, I'm Christine Borst. I'm a clinical assistant professor at Arizona State University. And I have really been trying to reduce my time on my cell phone. So at night, um, I've been trying to read a little bit more. And this month, I've challenged myself to read all of the Harry Potter books before descending upon Harry Potter world in January. So I've actually been staying up a lot later than normal because I've just been wanting to get through those. So, But reading, I think, avoiding screens. Reading something not too interesting would probably be right, better yeah. if fall asleep. But. The first few days, the dream, my dreams were a little out of control because of all the Harry Potter stuff, but they've leveled out. I've gotten used to it. That's awesome. Uh, all right. Uh, good morning, good evening, or wherever you are, if you're running, sitting down, eating dinner. Um, my name is Deepu George, and I work as an assistant professor uh, in family medicine in uh, the Rio Grande Valley, which is the southernmost tip of the United States, and that's where I live and do the wonderful work of integrated care. Um, the sleep routine that I don't do often, but do more often than not, is something called the examine. Examine is a end-of-the-day review of your day, and it's a, it comes from the Ignatian tradition or the Ignatian spiritual exercises proposed by St. Ignatius. And it's really just to walk through your day and then noticing moments in the day where whoever you relate to in terms of a divine presence or spirit was present and when it was not present. I, for the past month, I've not finished it because I'm like knocked out halfway through the meditation. So uh, that's been a good routine. Meaningful and effective, it sounds like. It always cracks me. I do relaxation exercises with our residents when they're on their behavioral medicine month. And I always tell them, if you fall asleep, it's okay. It just means it's working. Because uh, they're always like, oh, no, I turned around, I fell asleep. Sleep is relaxation. That's good. You're doing good. <laughs> All right. And I'm uh, Bridget Beachy. I'm a clinical psychologist, director of behavioral health at Community Health of Central Washington. And uh, as far as a bedtime routine, two things I've been really focusing on is trying to go to bed at the same time uh, every night. Uh, within, I have a range on my Fitbit that I set. And then the second thing is to uh, fit some like fun couple time in uh, because before I was kind of doing like work, exercise, eating, sleep. And uh, 
I was noticing that like there was no like chill time. So now it's work, exercise, eat, watch a little bit of um, basketball. Normally LeBron James and the Lakers. Uh, I bought like every league pass that there is so I can get every game. So uh, my husband and I, we watch the game a little bit. Um, and if they're up pretty big, then I can go to bed happy. And then if they're not, then I just shut it off before they lose. And in my mind, they still won. So, <laughs> Perfect. Uh, <laughs> Do you so get worked up when they're losing? Uh, yeah. You know, I guess that's going against the sleep hygiene thing. <laughs> um, I do, but they've been on a pretty big win streak. They're like, I don't know, 22 and five or something. So they haven't lost very much. Uh, so normally I can go to bed. Happy. <laughs> so that <laughs> means your sleep streak is pretty good. Yeah. Correct. Correct. And then cool. turn off everything. Just like no lights. No, I'd like it pitch black, no sounds, uh, no anything. And then I'm completely out. So it's pretty cool. Uh, well, we are going to talk a whole lot more about sleep and some general recommendations and how it impacts our work on integrated care. But first, we're just going to take a quick break. So here's the situation. You're a clinic trying to implement what should be a simple screening process for depression, and you're just not getting results. And you're trying to get your primary care providers working together with your mental health professionals, but the two sides just aren't jiving. Meanwhile, everyone agrees that the need is great and something needs to be done. Well, that's where CFHA's technical assistance services come in. We work with projects large and small from one-hour consultations to 1,000 hours and help you implement integrated care pathways that are evidence-based and grounded in practical know-how. Our stable of consultants are here to help. Interested? Then simply go to cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. Join the growing list of organizations who have benefited from the best guidance for integrated care around. That's cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. And we're back. Well, uh, let's just launch right into our discussion of sleep. So I'm curious to hear kind of in a general sense, you know, we've, we've all been clinicians working in integrated care. And so what are some of the typical and maybe also some of the more unusual ways that you have seen sleep come up as relevant in your work? I think um, when one of the things that I noticed is like typical stuff related to sleep consults that we get in patient care stuff, right? And so, you know, we would go through these techniques and other things and we'll uh, introduce them to like the CBTI process and then get them started on basic stuff. And then I've noticed that a lot of the providers that get really curious about what are the different techniques and things that we talk about. And then they start asking more. Of course, they have assigned ratings too. So I think it's gotten us talking about sleep uh, for our providers based on what we do and treat patients with or teach them. Um, so that's been an interesting way how we focus on how sleep affects um, the workforce uh, in an interesting way in our clinic. Um, and then I think the other big component that I've discovered is around sleep ability versus sleep opportunity. So a lot of people may be complaining of sleep and they can fall asleep, but their work life or shift work or other things their opportunity to sleep is not optimum, right? And that's where the real difficulty is. But then there's all of these uh, solutions that people are trying, whether it's prescription medications or other things that they begin to try to fall asleep 
when the real issue is there is a sleep opportunity challenge and it's not that they can't fall asleep. So helping patients and providers differentiate between both of those things, I think is a big win in terms of really figuring out what the problem is. And I don't know if any of you in your clinical roles or uh, other roles have like seen that. So I used to spend a lot of time in uh, PEDS. And so of course we'd have parents come in and the, the opportunity just was not there for sleep because the kids weren't sleeping. And so there was a lot of, um, and you know, some of this is normal. You know, you have a two week old at home. It's going to be tough for a little bit of time, but then how can we help them cope with that and empower them to ask for help or to, you know, switch nights off or to sneak in naps during the day. Um, but then obviously as the kids get older, there was a lot of issues with sleep too. Um, not only for the kids, but for the parents too. Yeah, so a couple things that you guys have highlighted already that I'm hearing are the fact that, like everything we do in integrated care, it's not just our patients, it's us too, and the impact that that has on the whole team. And also that there's a lot of different ways that sleep um, can be impacted and impacts the whole family system. If one person's not sleeping, it impacts everybody. And sometimes that's opportunity and sometimes that's the mechanics of sleep. And sometimes that's uh, like my four-year-old who woke up at 1.50 this morning wanting a banana. And I asked him, Henry, why did you wake up so early? And he said, well, mom, it's part of my routine. (laughs) So I'm really, I'm here for the tips. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it, It impacts everybody. Yeah, I think I'm a one-trick pony on this podcast to do in the contextual interview. At this point, I truly will not do, um, I won't, you know, get any type of dialogue about solutions or um, problem solving with a patient until I do the contextual interview. I don't care what the uh, prompt is. Um, if, if, they, if I get called in for anything, sleep or anything, I'm going to do the contextual interview because that's the biggest thing that I found is that I could get called in for something completely random that's not sleep and then turns out something really bizarre is happening and you, and people don't necessarily state it. And then you're fine. You're like putting, you know, normally my litmus test is like, can I picture a day in, uh, in their shoes? And if I can't, then I'm not going to move forward. So once I do and you start hearing about people's sleep routines, you're just like, oh my gosh, we need to work on like, is it cool if we start working on that? Because this is what I'm hearing. So, and then other times, um, you know, you get called in for sleep, but you do your contextual interview and you find like people you're saying, uh, or, you know, uh, Christine's saying about kids or uh, shift work. And you're like, well, we can do all the relaxation techniques in the world. You don't have enough opportunity. So that's just my little rule of thumb that no matter what, I'm always going to do a contextual interview. So we have people that come to us for all different, like we get sleep consults for all different kinds of reasons. And, you know, we have it can be a function of someone's illness. It can be related to physical health issues. It could be causing physical health issues. Um, and we see that bi-directional relationship in both of them. Um, so I wonder if there's any, and, and you just said, you know, I hear it in the interview a lot. I hear it when I'm finding out the context, but I wonder if there's any times that you, your brain starts wondering sleep is sleep an issue 
even like when, when someone else presents with something else, like I'm thinking my pain patients a lot, you know, they hurt so much that it makes it hard for them to sleep. And then their body's fatigued and their muscles are tense. And then that impacts their sleep more. So I wonder if there's other issues like that, that you hear that are really a good illustration of kind of biopsychosocial spiritual for people um, in y'all's practice. You know, I see this a lot with my students, actually, um, and I think there is a connection to patients, too, but when I'm grading some sort of paper or response, and I'm thinking, what happened here? Um, usually, that's what I reach out and say, when did you write this? You know, was this after midnight when you had worked all day and then put your kids to bed and whatever? Um, and so... I really try at the beginning of every semester to say, please don't like if this is if if your time to get this carved out in your life is between, you know, when you should be sleeping and you're not making up for it any other time, then something's going on and we really need to get through that. Um, so I think in the same thing with patients, if they're coming in and complaining of a lot of irritability or depression or just I feel like sleep is one of my low-hanging fruit that I really like to look at first for most things. Anxiety. I mean, it, all of the things, I think there's, they're rooted in not getting enough sleep. Weight loss, for example. I'm just going to keep talking because I can keep, they keep popping in my head. I'm like, oh, and that one too. Excess cortisol. If you're not getting enough sleep, you're going to hang on to the weight. So I think it's so uh, multifaceted. Yeah, I think you should always be talking to the PCP about their physical health. Uh, and or looking at the face sheet combination of all of the above, because that goes into your conceptualization from the start. So from the moment, well, actually, before you even see the patient, you're going to be talking with the team, MAs, the P, uh, PCP, you're going to be looking at the face sheet, looking at previous BHC notes, and you're going to be building a conceptualization. So you should have a ton of information before you even step foot in the room. And then as you ferret things out, uh, yeah, I mean, chronic pain is just an absolute huge one. Diabetes is another one. Uh, that um, that comes up. So uh, yeah, I think it's all, all of the above. And I think that when you're new in integrated care, you don't realize how everything around you is a bit of information. And you're like, man, how can I operate so quickly in this, in this setting? Well, it, you know, it takes reps and it takes time. But over time, you know, you're able to do a lot of this information that used to take you 10 minutes. You can now do it in 30 seconds. Yeah, so if I, you're new in integrated care, don't panic. <laughs> it's, it, it takes time. Yeah, that, I think, Bridget, you bring out a good point of just like getting used to collating and collecting information, gleaning it, and then just thinking about what's the most pertinent thing when you walk in the room or providing feedback to your PCP or your medical assistant or whatever it may be. I think one of the things that uh, the more I deal with all sorts of issues that we see in primary care, the more I sort of begin to realize how like underlying all of it, it is probably a lot related to your sleep behavior. Like even the ADA guidelines for diabetes management, one of the things that it recommends for your daily lifestyle is seven to eight hours of sleep. And like that's one of the core guidelines that they have uh, for treatment. And I can guarantee you like part of the PCP conversation, a lot of the times does not include things like sleep and it has other recommendations like one to two hours of yoga every week as a, as a ADA recommendation. Um, so I know we try to put a lot of emphasis on, are you asking about sleep? One of our residents is starting a QI project where anybody who marks um, one, two or a three on the PHQ-9 related to sleep 
we're starting a pathway to make sure that they get seen for a sleep assessment consult and oh, sort of awesome. see, so see how we can improve sleep for it doesn't matter what you're coming in for it could have been it could be for your annual well visit right um and we're going to still work with you to make sure that it doesn't trip into something else in the future so i think sleep under is like the undercurrent for i think almost every thing related to health i think so too i think it's so clearly related to just our general systemic health too your immune system cannot be fully functioning when you're not sleeping. I know this is why I have this thing for my voice because I can't sleep because my kids aren't sleeping. And so I'm picking up every germ that they're bringing home from daycare. Uh, and so it just is pervasive. And so thinking then, uh, now that we've acknowledged that everyone has sleep issues and we need to be treating everyone's sleep, uh, what does that treatment look like? Maybe we can divide it up a little bit because just like you guys said earlier, there are those two pieces. There's the piece of I can't fall asleep slash I can't stay asleep, which is also two different issues um, versus that I don't have the opportunity to sleep. So let's start with just kind of the mechanics of let's say you know, I, I'm, I've got the time in my schedule. I have that luxury, we'll pretend, so, but I can't sleep. What do I do? How do you help a patient like that? I think that's where I really like to go in and check out the sleep hygiene. Um, again, with the low-hanging fruit, um, tell me about your caffeine intake, your, um, you know, a, a little bit, are you having you know, a ton of sugar in the evening or Mountain Dew from 2 p.m. on or coffee? Um, what's your activities right before bed? Are you getting real, really riled up at basketball and they're losing and you're really upset and then you're fired up and you can't do anything? You know, what are you getting in like wars with your relatives on Facebook about politics? Like what is happening in those few hours before bed? And then can we kind of track some of that and change some of that? And I think it's really important too to connect with the patient and say, what are are you willing to change? Because we could give them a ton of great advice, but you know what, if they need that, those espressos all afternoon to get through the day, then we're not meeting them where they're at. I agree with that. I don't know what you guys think. The percentage of folks that I work with that are in the preparation stage of change with regards to sleep uh, is low from where I'm coming from. Uh, most of the folks that I'm working with and that's, uh, I know, again, tr one trick pony, but uh, with the contextual interview is I will find out what they're willing to work on. And so for some folks, they're willing to do some more walking throughout the day. And so I'm like, okay, that can help your sleep in this way. So if, you know, I try to tie back their identified problem with what they've given me and what they're willing to work on. So I never really know how those visits are going to go. In a perfect world, I'd have them do a sleep log, but they have to be brought into to that. So um, I'm always ready for uh, when somebody's like, all right, I want to work on this. I have like sleep logs. I have all my sleep hygiene sheets. I give everyone a sleep hygiene sheet if they don't want it. <laughs> everyone gets one on the way out. Um, even if they shred it, that's fine. Um, <laughs> but when I, when I actually work with them, I find that I got to be a little bit more, I got to be a lot more creative um, for just a general person uh, for what they're willing to give me. And a lot of that will come out and then kind of tie it back in. Yeah, and I, along with the willingness, I usually sort of I have learned to ask, you know, on a scale of one to 10, considering all the other things in your life. I know we talked about sleep for like 15 minutes. How important is it for you to really work on your sleep? Because sometimes you sort of begin to explain things and you sort of see them like doing the backtrack. I'm like, oh, I'm in the change chair. I shouldn't be in the change chair. Like you should be in the change chair. So this is really important to you in order to like get the ball rolling. I really... Uh, 
just really help patients think about their relationship with their bed uh, and what they do in bed. So, right. So like the early stages of like staying in bed and worrying now automatically begins to serve as a trigger when they go to sleep. So just helping them associate that, well, you want to be relaxed and calm when you go to sleep, but the minute you approach your bed or as you're thinking about sleep right now, I would often ask, what are you feeling or what does your body feel like? Then you'll say, oh, I feel really tense and I feel worried. And so helping them de-associate with that, with some basic stimulus control, uh, you know, not staying in bed longer than 20 minutes, getting up and doing some light activity. And as part of the plan, I make them think through, visualize. So in 20 minutes, you're not asleep. What would I see you do at home? Uh, where would you go to? What book do you have uh, sitting on the counter, sitting on the couch? Nice. Uh, you know, and then make sure that it's a low light or whatever. Right? So we set it up so that it sort of helps them really get into the routine. And so that's sort of like the plan that we usually send them home with. So helping them with that, and if that doesn't usually work, uh, we sort of then look at their cognitions and things related to sleep. Um, what are like the unhelpful thoughts that you get? Uh, sort of like helping them catch the thoughts and then sort of helping them do different things with it, whether it's like looking for more helpful functional thoughts or just distancing from the thoughts because they're just unhelpful things that come up and go. Um, and then I obviously find relaxation techniques and other things like everything from visual imagery to like progressive muscle relaxation or whatever it may be, like helping them to fall asleep quicker if they're not um, sort of at that point of relaxation and things. I like that you said that. I, I think sleep is one of the things, especially that it's really easy to spin out on and it becomes the worst just reinforcing cycle because you're so tired and so anxious about not sleeping that then all you can think about is how you're not sleeping and then you're more tired and you get so worked up and it's the opposite of what we need our bodies to be doing we need to be putting the brakes on all of that we need to be calming and instead we just get revved up and up and up and up so anything we can do to stop that cycle can be so powerful and a lot of times there's so much that's out of our patient's control. So, you know, earlier you guys mentioned sleep shift work and new babies and we didn't even talk about like partner sleep issues. Cause if you're sharing the bed with somebody that doesn't sleep, that's a recipe for disaster. Uh, so when someone's like, well, I have all these reasons why this can't work and this can't work and this can't work and this can't work. How do you deal with it then? They know they're exhausted, but it just feels like there's no options. Then you like really every, be every day. Yeah. <laughs> That's like every patient. <laughs> That's like, you really begin to then say, okay, so this is, I, I begin to then immediately say, I can see you really want to change, but it sounds like there are all these barriers in the way. Help me understand how important is this for us to work on right now? Because it sounds like the, the countertop is like really crowded. And if we add one more thing, everything else is going to just fall apart, right? So helping them sort of come to terms with, based on all the context of your life, are you willing to experience some discomfort in the service of being healthier by getting more sleep? And that would mean making some changes to your daily routines and other things. And is that important? And are you willing to do that? Um, so I try to problem solve there or say, uh, we'll check back in with you next time you come back to the clinic to start on something, knowing that this is something that we actively have to work on. And then, of course, they walk out with the sleep hygiene 
handout. Yes. So, you know, so give them that. Um, but those, those are really hard. Making it rain, sleep, hygiene handouts. <laughs> right. Absolutely. We had a video for everyone. The- yeah those are really hard conversations i also try to like help patients understand like really like what we're trying to do is just help you stay in bed longer uh and the in the in the sense of the the number of minutes you stay in bed should be equal to the number of minutes you sleep so it's really just aligning those things so i think people when they hear but i want to sleep better they may imagine like those eight hour long sleep initially from like the next day they see you um helping them understand that like some of the things I'm going to ask you to do may actually worsen your sleep in the next few weeks than actually get you to sleep like you want to, but we'll slowly get there. Uh, So there is like the way the sleep interventions work. There's some immediate negative effects that can happen uh, that people are not going to be really motivated to keep trying. So helping them like just think through the future. Um, I always, I think, go back to the whole question of are you willing and is it important? Uh, if there's like all of these other things. Um, I don't know, uh, other things that you pull from the contextual interview, Bridget, in terms of like how you move through that. Yeah, I mean, we might not even talk about sleep. If they're willing to do something, if they're willing to do something else in their life, then we might abandon that. And I mean, not completely. It's still, right. like I said, they'll still get the hy- hygiene sheet. It's still on my mind. It'll still be in my note. But right. um, we might go a different direction. I also like really what Grace did that was a really nice, um, I don't know if you were meaning to do it, but I can tell that you've done it before when you're explaining the negative cycle of sleep and you're like, yeah, you know, and then this happens and this happens. That right there, that validation, I know, Carl Rogers, that validation right there um, and empathy. I mean, people will break down crying when you just do, Grace, that was beautiful. If you just did what Grace did and go into a visit when someone who's struggling with it, uh, there can be so much connection that happens and there could be a relief that happens that like, man, my doctor, or at least people associated in the doctor's office, they get it. Yes, of course, they want to help me improve and make changes, but they get me. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that loosens up a little bit of area. I totally agree. And I think that in today's society, we're just told to keep going. It's really busy. We're going to be tired. You've got work. You've got kids. Just keep going. It's okay. It's okay. If you stop, you're weak. And so I think to really stop and connect and say, you know what? I hear you. I see you. This must be really exhausting for you. Um, that can be monumental for people who don't think it's maybe right. That's, that's, I mean, like you said, Bridget, when Grace was saying that, I'm like, I've been here when you see the patient who's like, you, I, it's so hard. It is so hard. And sometimes just having someone say, yeah, this is a tough part of your life. Let me help you change that. If you're ready can be right. huge. And like Deepu said too, I think, Preparing the patients with proper expectations is also huge. Anytime you do something oh. different with your kids, it's going to be worse. Anytime, you know, you cut out a little caffeine from your day, it's probably going to hurt yeah. a little bit. Yeah, it's yeah. going to be tough. And so to say, you know what, that's okay. Um, and it's also okay if this isn't the right time for you to do that. Uh, you know, holidays, whatever, maybe this isn't the right time, but let's talk about what that right time would look like and then set that date and then I'll help hold you accountable to that. Yeah. And I think I had a patient yesterday who came back after two weeks and she actually filled out the sleep diary and she like brought the sleep diary back. So we had like data to look at and all of that. Oh my God, that's beautiful. She, so stimulus control 
like really didn't work for her, right? Like, so she's, and she, she did everything as we sort of went through the sleep hygiene and all of that. So it's like a perfect patient. And then she also brought her husband with her yesterday uh, to sort of like, uh, you know, plan this out with us. And so yesterday we spent a lot of time just looking at her unhelpful cognitions and how that uh, leads her to feel stress. And so we sort of mapped that out and gave her some exercises around that. And her husband was there and he was sort of like, uh, yeah, this makes sense. I had uh, uh, read this book on emotional intelligence. So all of the stuff that you're saying makes sense. And I'll work with her on getting these exercises done. It was like the perfect patient and the perfect couple to work on this thing. But it, I thought she came back uh, partly because we listened to her sleep issues as a serious thing. And we sort of uh, helped her recognize that, wow, this is such an important part for you and you're really struggling with it. Let's see what we can do to help you. So as a team, I feel like, because she has a psychiatrist that she goes sees, and, you know, like, so she could easily say, I want to take the medication route and like, screw this. But I, I think that validation <laughs> of her sleep struggle uh, helped her come back to us also. And she said, I want to stop taking all my sleep medications because that's not the way I want to learn how to sleep. I'm really glad that you brought that up too, because I wanted to talk, I wanted to make sure that we talk about medications. Um, you know, I, some of the most frustrated times that I've had residents come to me for a consult is when a patient says, well, nothing works, but my mom gave me one of her Ambien and that worked and I slept good. So could you just write me to take, you know, 10 milligrams of Ambien every night? And our doctors are like, you know, but for some of these patients, and I really think there's an element of desperation. And and that's the thing I really encourage them to look at and and to to associate with their own experiences of not sleeping. So I say, you know, that's that's fresh for my residents because a lot of them are new parents and they've all had to have night shifts. and, and, And so I say, you know, think back to when you were your most tired on that bloat. What would you not have done? to be able to get sleep. Uh, And so I try to frame it that way. But for some of our patients, they're so fixated on, I've got to have something that will help. And I feel, I don't know if maybe this is, maybe this is an Oklahoma thing, or if this is true for all of you guys, but sleep medication seems to be something that is shared a lot. And so I, I will have a lot of patients who say, yeah, I took my aunts or my cousins or my friends because I was so desperate for sleep and it worked. So please, can I have more? So how are you handling that issue in, in your teams probably? And this is, I think, a place where really our teams can shine um, because we do have the interdisciplinary But How do you handle that? I just, if you just give me some ambient, all my sleep problems would be solved. Right. I think uh, our, our preceptors do a good job in sort of like, uh, being careful about prescribing any controlled substances of any kind and sort of like residents are forced to think a little bit differently with that. And then also setting realistic expectations around medications and its use for sleep. There is a great interview on Fresh Air with sleep scientist Matthew Walker. Uh, so if you want to, we'll put the link on the show notes. And he really begins to talk about like the effects of medication. So I think Medications are great when you're like, it's like you've had like chronic sleep problems to help you through a little bump, but it should never be the long-term solution or the continuous solution to manage your sleep. And uh, one of the things that he talked about, even something like melatonin, right? So he uses like this brilliant analogy to like explain what melatonin does. So he says like the melatonin is designed to help you regulate the timing of your sleep 
So melatonin does not actually participate in the generation of sleep itself. And it's kind of misunderstood. Um, so he, he says, the only way to think about melatonin is a little bit like the starting official in a 100-meter race at the Olympics, the official with the gun. The official, which is melatonin, actually organizes the great sleep race and then begins the race. But the official does not participate in the race itself. And that's the case for melatonin in sleep. So he said, but if you begin to believe that melatonin really helps you, placebo effect is also really powerful. And if that's what's going to help you through it, so you use that. The thing that he really talks about against sleeping pills is that it doesn't produce naturalistic sleep. Uh, so the broad set of chemicals that we call the sedatives and sedation is not sleep. So helping differentiate between sleep and the sedative properties of the medications that you actually help people start on may not be the long-term solution. So I think a lot has to come with setting expectations and explaining how certain things work so that people have a realistic and more informed approach to choosing what they want to do to manage their sleep. Um, and I think because we have that strict policy in our clinic, um, residents are forced to think beyond a little bit, except in cases where they're sharing things and then they find out through accidental experimentation of the benefits of uh, whatever that they tried. And I think, too, sitting with them and saying, you know, it, it sounds like you must be so exhausted and that one must have been wonderful to have that great night of sleep. And um, I think it, it would be my goal for you, too, that you can continue having great sleep, but I want you to have real great sleep and this is what I know about, blah, 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 and then kind of go into it with Deepu. So, again, meeting them where they're at, validating, because when you're so exhausted and somebody is saying, no, I'm not going to help you sleep, that's very irritating. <laughs> Yeah, I think we've been trying to help our residents understand that you can be empathic and kind and then firm on the medicine. So like you're saying, Christine, validate the heck out of their experience. Um, and then probably what Grace was getting at as well, that we have to watch our like the own guilt of the physician. Well, it can go boom, it can go both ways. Sometimes it's like they can get mad at the patient, which I don't I don't blame them for. You know, it's it's a stressful situation. They're kind of putting that thing on them or I guess if they're letting them put it on them. Um, and then other times it's kind of like, you know, Hey, they got to suck it up. Like I, it can get a little bit, it can get a little bit wonky. So long story short with the residents, it's almost like put yourself in their shoes, validate their experience. And that doesn't mean that you stray from the science. So if the science says this isn't in their best interest, we have to be firm on that, but you don't have to be firm on explaining that to them. You know what I mean? Like be like, well, look, I'm not giving that to you because that medicine doesn't line up. So like, let's not talk about it anymore. No, you can hear them, reflect it, be empathic, and then make that shift of, and this isn't really what's in, um, you know, the medicine that to support this. So that can be, that can be tough. And you know, I'm not the one with the prescription pad either. This is another thing that I, I feel for the PCPs, the amount of pressure that they're on uh, constantly and under constantly. Um, it's so nice not being able to prescribe. It's the best thing about being a doctor of psychology, right? Like I don't have to prescribe medication. Yeah. I don't want anything to do with that. So I have an extra sense of empathy for them that it's easy for me to sit here and say, Hey, be empathic, but firm when I'm not the one with the prescription pad. 
And that's and I think part of the that dilemma is also maybe the providers that we work with are willing to take that extra step and be more value driven or whatever it is and not prescribe. But the patient sitting in front of you may have had a provider who without blinking, what is, oh yeah, you're having trouble sleep. Oh, you're anxious. Let me give you this. Let me give you that. And then here is like this new doctor who's like, mm. uh, like wanting to change the way things were done and the patients are really upset. So the, lots of empathy for our primary care colleagues who are having to hold the power, but wield it so lightly uh, in, in mm. situations that uh, actually demand it, you know, and it's, it's such a hard uh, non-dominant skill uh, that people have to practice. I was just thinking uh, a recent experience with my PCP who I feel lukewarm at best about, but that's okay. My personal, not my, <laughs> not professional. Um, and he, he said, he gave me a medicine and then he said, and then if you can't sleep, just let me know and I'll give you another medicine. And I'm like, I'm just curious about your approach to this because that doesn't seem like the best way, but then I just don't do, you know, it's, I'm a terrible patient because I really don't, our beliefs don't really align and it's not necessarily a, a very integrated setting, but um, it, you can see though how sometimes patients get to this place where they are wanting these medications because they could have been in a situation where it was readily given to them, just like pain medication. And so then for us to come in and be like, well, you shouldn't be on that. That's, that's a really tough switch for patients yeah. too. I'm going to shift gears first a little bit, if that's okay. We lightly discussed children's sleep earlier, um, but I wonder if we could revisit that a little more because that's, a, you know, when especially when we're working in a family medicine setting or a PEDS setting where there's a high volume of pediatric patients, sleep happens, talks a lot. So when we're talking about sleep training with babies or sleep with children, I wonder if there's any specific advice that we have for people that are working with parents around kids' sleep and pediatric sleep issues. I think this is where I, this is, I would go back to like Bridget's one, uh, you know, one trick pony thing and, say, and really begin to say, uh, can I, it's, I, one of the questions I often ask patients is if I can observe you throughout the day on a video monitor, but I can't hear what you're saying, but only what you're doing, what would I see you do? So like, can I see the kind of behaviors and other things that are happening throughout the day for them and especially around sleep? Uh, for kids, it, it's, I think about what is the environment? What is the routine? What is the calming down process? And what is the level of participation from mom and dad in that whole uh, routine? And how predictable is it? Uh, how willing are the parents to really stick to certain routines even at their own discomfort? Um, and how willing are they to now when they like start uh, having them sleep in a separate room, how willing are they to like hear the baby cry and not really like go immediately to rescue. And those are like hard conversations because uh, we are so attached to our infants that those are things that you wouldn't want to put somebody through. Right. And, but so getting a really good, rich description of things around uh, evening time, like the sleep routine. Um, so that's, I would really check on that first before I would say, this is what you need to do, or these are the things that you can try. 
I also think that sometimes um, sleep and sleep routine and boundaries around sleep can be a metaphor for kind of the parenting in general and not always, uh, but sometimes you can see the connection between is it, is it hard for you to hold this line in other places too, like it is when the kids come into your room every night. Um, from a systemic perspective, what are those kids doing when those kids are coming into the bed that you share with your partner? Is that a safety thing for you? Because then you don't have to be alone with your partner. You know, if you and the kid fall asleep first. So I think there's a lot of richness sometimes in that. Sometimes it's just the kids have a really hard time sleeping. Um, but also I think it's, it can be really triggering for parents. Like I'm a bad mom if I let my kid cry. It's like, well, let's unpack that. Um, and then let's talk about it. sometimes that's self-soothing. That's you are empowering your child to have the skills they need to be able to self-soothe and have a good life of sleep themselves. So, um, you know, really getting into that because so much about parenthood, it's just so tied, you know, these little things just do things because they're, you know, creatures who have their own thinking minds. Um, but it's so tied to our own self-worth, like I'm a bad dad if. And so I think really sitting with parents and saying, okay, it's okay if your kid fusses a little bit, um, you're still a good person and this is how I know that or whatever. I'm also laughing a little because we, I checked, I thought I heard something last night at about 10 o'clock and I look on my four-year-old's little camera that's in the room and she completely fell out of bed and then just continued sleeping. My husband went up and took a picture and she's just sound asleep, like in between stuff. And so it's like so hit or miss because that was the kid who woke up once a night for the first year, no matter what I did. So I think really validating with parents too, that you know what? It's short term. There are things you can do now. We can make it better. I'm here to help you with that. This has been a great discussion. Is there anything that any of us want to add that you didn't get a chance to say yet about sleep that you wanted to share? On what Christine was saying with regards to how uh, close uh, t like parenting is tied to us, especially when we're dealing with trauma. I, I know that we didn't sp spend a lot of time on it, but um, you start thinking about ACEs and you start thinking about what's hitting close to home and then you have new children or you have your own children and now you don't want them to go through what you went through or what have you. It's like you said, it could be very, very emotional and tied up. And you know, that is always something on my radar is I'm always scanning for ACEs during the contextual interview and it, it may or may not come out per se, but it's still in my conceptualization, just like everything. It might not be something I explicitly say, but it's, 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 it's in the conceptualization. I'm so glad you said that too, because I mean, we would be remiss, I think, to do any podcast where we don't mention trauma. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's nightmares or it's re-experiencing or it's the darkness that's triggering for someone with those PTSD symptoms. And Christine, you mentioned safety and relationships earlier, but there's this whole other added element of trauma and safety mm -hmm. because you're at your most vulnerable when you are asleep. You can't right. protect yourself. Yeah you can't see a threat coming. And so sometimes what a patient is describing as alertness or anxiety or can't sleep might be hypervigilance mm -hmm. or might be re-experiencing intrusive thoughts. Uh, and so we absolutely should include that as part of our differential. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Yeah, and even some, some of the things that patients would want, right? Like leave the door open or leave the light on because they're sort of worried about certain things can go wrong or they, they have this deeper un, uh, unhelpful association with darkness and sleep and safety. Mm -hmm. And so that can really, uh, so yeah, Bridget, thank you so much for bringing that back to the table. Two trick pony, aces and contextual. <laughs>
Was there something else you were going to say, Deepu? I was just going to say there, like, uh, one of the things that I uh, help uh, patients think about once we get information is just really helping them understand their sleep efficiency. And I found, like, er earlier I used to, like, sit through the consult and, like, get the numbers and, like, try to calculate it in my head, always get it wrong, uh, put the wrong denominator and the numerator and all of that. There is this great... um, website called mysleepwell.ca and it actually has a sleep efficiency calculator and so I just pull that up with the patient we plug in their daily bedtime when they go to sleep what time do they fall asleep how many times did they wake up during the night uh, how long were the awakenings in total and what time was their final awakening and what time did they get out of bed to start their day and you can just press calculate and it spits out the calculation and an interpretation of the results. And so part of setting up the treatment is easy in that it says, so it'll say your sleep efficiency is 65%. And we say, you know, our goal is to get you anywhere between 85 to 89%, right? And so, um, so it just becomes like a, a easier conversation about treatment expectations. And it has tons of resources uh, on that site. Uh, so that usually helps. Uh, as a good conversation starter, explanation, and other things that the patient can use um, as they work through sleep. We will put that in the show notes. Um, speaking of online resources, there's a CBT for insomnia online um, training that people can do that does have a cost associated with it, but it's cheaper than going to in-person therapy, and it's pretty manualized, and so we can link to that. Um, and then, you know, there's a million relaxation uh, apps out there. Insight Timer is free. So that's a good one to point people to. I think it's Calm app that has the sleep stories in it that has the um, just really relaxing, calming story if someone needs the distracting narrative to um, kind of pull them away from their anxious thoughts. Um, do you guys have other resources that you point people to? Well, there, those things are called sleep casts. Uh, like my patient told me about it yesterday when it came with her husband. Oh, yeah, I listen to Sleepcast before I go to sleep. <laughs> like, okay. Well, thank you guys so much for this discussion. I hope that it leads us to maybe some ideas even for ourselves and for our patients and um, that we get some good rest during this uh, end of the year and holiday season. Uh, well, the next time you hear from us will be in 2020. And so uh, Deepu has a lead out for us. It's a blessing for the end of the year. Take us out. That's right. It is by John O'Donohue. Uh, Grace was gracious enough to send me this wonderful gift of blessings that I use a lot uh, in different settings. And this is perfect for our last podcast for 2019. So here it is. It's called At the End of the Year. The particular mind of the ocean filling the coastline's longing with such brief harvest of elegant vanishing waves is like the mind of time opening us shapes of days. As this year draws to its end, we give thanks for the gifts it brought and how they became inlaid within where neither time nor tide can touch them. The days when the veil lifted and the soul could see delight, when a quiver caressed the heart in the sheer exuberance of being here. Surprises that came awake in forgotten corners of old fields where expectations seemed to have quenched. 
the slow brooding times when all was awkward and the wave in the mind pierced every sore with salt. The darkened days that stopped the confidence of the dawn. Days when beloved faces shone brighter with light from beyond themselves and from the granite of some secret sorrow, a stream of buried tears loosened. We blessed this year for all we learned, for all we loved and lost, and for the quiet way it brought us nearer to our invisible destination. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Deepu, and we will see you guys next year. All right. Uh, see you guys. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.